So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Fame. It's probably one of the two or three most sought-after prizes in our world. Whether it's a horde of friends on Facebook or a posse of followers on Twitter or a fan base on Instagram ooing and eyeing over that picture you took of your breakfast that morning, or maybe it's thousands of likes on a picture or a post or bigger book sales, high-profile speaking engagements, prominence in the denomination. Fame is the thing that makes the other stuff that people seek somehow just that much better. You know, nobody likes to admit that they want to be famous. But deep down, most of us do. And fame was important in the ancient world as well. Monuments and inscriptions and temples and massive burial complexes, palaces, capital cities built on bedrock just across the river from an existing perfectly functional capital. Fame drove the kings and the warlords and the elites of the ancient world every bit as much as it drives us today. And even more so because they believed that fame in this world made you famous with the gods. They feared that if their name was forgotten, that somehow in the afterlife they would suffer humiliation or even annihilation. So every ancient monarch tried to put up as many monuments and inscriptions as possible, all inscribed with their name or names, and at the end a declaration that anybody who defaces their name replaces it on the monument or just allows it to fall into disrepair and not be visible will be punished with terrible curses. I could read some of them for you, but we don't have time. Likewise, those who would ensure the monument's visibility, keep it prominent, will be blessed and might even be allowed to engrave their own name on the monument as well. So when Yahweh says to Joshua, I'm going to make you famous, he was saying a lot more than you're going to be trending on Twitter for a month. Any aspiring leader in the ancient world hearing that promise would think that God was offering success in every endeavor, everlasting remembrance, eternal recognition of his exploits. A name above all names, a name at which every knee would bow. Now travel back in time with me. The year is 1258 B.C. The place is a city in the eastern Nile Delta of Egypt called Per Ramses. A 40-something Egyptian pharaoh looks across his capital city. It's a splendid, sprawling capital built on the older Hyksos capital of Avarice, refurbished by Ramses' grandfather, further developed by his father, Ramses II, applied construction efforts to this site that ensured that the city is still thought to be one of the largest single integrally constructed objects on the face of the earth prior to the 19th century. Excavations by Manfred Betok at the site known as Quantir confirm this. Ramsey's capital city was over 3.7 miles long and 2 miles wide. It enclosed well over 2,500 acres. That's 10 million square meters. It was crisscrossed by canals and lakes and 
was, it was, it's been called the Venice of ancient Egypt. The site was so stupendous. It's even mentioned in the Bible. It was the great city on which the Israelite slaves had labored. In the distance, imagine our Pharaoh Ramses II spotting three splendidly arrayed chariots, clearly a diplomatic dispatch accompanied by a retinue of retainers and recorders and sycophants and camp followers. This Pharaoh Ramses II smiles for good reason. He is ending a 250-year war with the only remaining superpower of the ancient world. He's about to make an everlasting peace with the Hittite king Hattusili III. Months of delicate negotiations have brought about this achievement. The two most dangerous military and imperial powers of the late Bronze Age are about to make peace. But Ramses knows that more than negotiations led to this moment. And I can imagine that his mind travels back maybe 15 years to a town up in Lebanon called Kadesh. The year is 1274 and Ramses is a 20-something new king of Egypt. He looks down on a field of battle. He was caught by surprise during a rash and unguarded advance when he had done everything wrong. He had divided his forces, been tricked by Hittite spies, attacked by surprise while making camp, had his coffee going and everything, and then there's the enemy. He had been trapped between the walls of the city and the waters of the Orontes River, and his army faced almost certain annihilation. But the young king really showed his stuff through fierce, personal, raw, physical courage, enormous skill handling his chariot, and lethal effectiveness with his weaponry. He fought back, rallied his troops, and staved off utter disaster. At least that's what he tells us. He didn't exactly win, but hey, he didn't have to. All he had to do was fight to a draw, which is what he did. And so before him is the carnage of the battlefield, wrecked chariots, dead horses, dead men stripped of their armor and weapons. Something monumental, though, had happened. All through the late Bronze Age, you see, the great powers had fenced and fainted at one another, masking their hostility behind diplomatic exchanges and predatory trade, always fighting via proxies, their client kings in Canaan and Syria. But this day, almost by mistake, the two great kings... Ramses II of Egypt and Muatali II of the Hittites met directly on the field of battle. Their full forces engaged. It was almost as if the United States and Russia had collided on the battlefield of Syria. Fully deployed, fully committed, locked and loaded, safeties off, nuclear codes keyed in. And after a brutal and bloody battle, both kings survived. Ramses negotiated a ceasefire with the Hittite king and both men decided to go home and tell a tale of victory so glorious only the gods could have given it. And both men decided to let the other one get away with it. Both men clearly knew that they had not only found a formidable adversary, but somebody they could deal with. Terms were reached. It had taken 16 more years, a Hittite leadership crisis, the rise of a new empire in the east, a new Hittite king, but today... Those three Hittite chariots are bearing solid silver tablets inscribed in elegant Mesopotamian cuneiform, the first known written peace treaty between two megapowers, including an agreement, by the way, to return fugitive slaves if any should stumble into their territory. So watching those chariots approaching, Ramses had every reason to believe that he had secured a peace that would last forever. 
He felt he had reached the pinnacle of influence and power and beneficence and a fame that the whole world had opened up before him, a future of Egyptian-fostered peace, wealth, power, fame. All this appeared inevitable. And among the many temples and inscriptions and monuments and statues that Ramses II raised for himself to promote his fame and his everlasting memory, there was one colossus consisting of a single stone that weighed 1,000 tons. Now what Ramses did not know, or at least could not have admitted, was that the world for which he had secured that peace was about to vanish. The Bronze Age culture that had stood for thousands of years achieved a pinnacle of splendor and wealth and sophistication in Ramsey's own person and rule. That culture was about to explode into a million shards and fly across the land and be blown away by the wind and covered up in dust. The end of that period, the late Bronze Age, was so traumatic, so cataclysmic, Historians still refer to it as the catastrophe. Ramses died, by the way, after an epic 67-year rule. He outlived three successes. He's the Queen Elizabeth of the ancient world. I really think the guy who succeeded him finally just one day walked in and put a pillow on his face and said, I've had it with this man. I'm 61, I'm going to be Pharaoh. <laughs> anyway, a dozen years after Ramses died, in 1212 B.C., that's the history, thing the history books don't tell you. About a dozen years after he died, it was all over. A darkness of confusion and violence and destruction and chaos descended on the ancient Near East with no relief coming for 200 years. Egypt didn't fall, it just kind of shriveled up. From the sun god of the ancient world, it became just a lamp and a hurricane. Within a generation, the Egyptians would abandon the land of Canaan and hunker down in their homeland, a shadow of the power that they had been. And by the time of Samuel and Saul, Ramses' great capital city had been abandoned. <laughs> the branch of the Nile River had been built on, silted up, and the Venice of Egypt ended up with no water. An instant ghost town. Stones and monuments were robbed out of the abandoned ruins and the sands. In the desert, the sand always wins. The sands covered up the site. The name Ramses would continue to be borne by the great king's descendants, but none would equal his stature, and his glorious city would be forgotten. Ramses thought he had done something great, but it was over in the blink of an eye. That's the fame of the world. Now let's leave Ramses in peace, though, back at his capital, contemplating a new world order, everlasting fame and thousand-ton colosses, and think ahead a few years, maybe 1240 B.C. Another guy, Joshua, faces a challenge. Now this guy is no Ramses, though he's about the same age. He's from entirely the other end of the social spectrum. He's not a mighty king. He's got no capital city, no chariots, no retainers, and instead of solid silver tablets engraved in Dozens of lines of ornate cuneiform. He's got two rough tables of stone inscribed in a few lines of primitive Hebrew script. He's a former slave of Egypt, and in Egypt's eyes, in the eyes of the great Ramses, he's a fugitive from justice. He's got to guide his people, all freed slaves and the children of slaves, across the torrential flood of Jordan and take on the city rulers of Canaan. About 30 of these kings, all in the employ of, you guessed it, 
Ramses, all devoted to advancing the power of Egypt and their own careers, and they're not going to just stand there and let the Israelites return to the land where their ancestors had lived for centuries that God had promised them not a chance. Now, in the grand scheme of things, folks, Canaan was really a backwater, and these town rulers were pretty much third-rate warlords, but to a ragtag army of former slaves coming from the desert, these town rulers were a lethal threat. They were better armed, better trained, better supplied. They were professional soldiers, many foreign mercenaries. Everyone would have been committed to destroying these escaped slaves or returning them, like the fugitives they were, to Egypt. In the cervix of Egypt's voracious appetites, these rulers had stripped the land of its agricultural produce, steadily reduced the peasant population to desperation, subjected them to forced labor, and expatriated thousands to Egypt to serve the Pharaoh. They're accustomed to stomping the daylights out of peasant uprisings and third-rate revolutionaries. To them, Israel, poorly armed, ill-trained, is at this moment a mere annoyance. Israel's outgunned before they ever enter the land. To this man, Joshua, God says, I'm going to make you famous. Is the fame that God is going to offer Joshua really the same thing as that that is sought by all the great ones of the ancient and, let's face it, the modern world? See, the book of Joshua says a little about how God went about making him famous. Now realize, Joshua needed a little bit of PR or branding boost there in his life. Look who he had to follow. Moses, the guy who faced down Pharaoh, presided over the divine assault on Egypt through the plagues, led the nation out of slavery, crossed the Red Sea, stood before God at Sinai, received the Ten Commandments twice, mediated the covenant between Yahweh and his people. This guy, Moses, is called the servant of Yahweh, which is the highest accolade the Old Testament can give. Yet Joshua in the first verse of the book is called the assistant of Moses. And even though Moses is dead, he, not Joshua, is still the servant of Yahweh. You will at some time in your life follow a pastor or a professor or an administrator or a leader, somebody with a high profile, likely one they will deserve. And you'll find people still referring to that person as the pastor, the leader, as if the position were still vacant. You'll, you'll want to say, excuse me, I'm here, I'm the one doing this job now. And it will gall you that you are known not for yourself, but as the person who came after pastor so-and-so, with the implication that you might actually be a step down in the succession. It's easy for people with enormous gifts still to end up forgotten. So Joshua needs some elevation. Israel was in a bit of a stature crisis and as the memory of Moses faded, which it did if the book of Judges is any proof, who would be the next person to wear those sandals? Joshua also needed a bit of a PR boost because in a definite, though subtle way, the text lets us know that there were some people in Israel who weren't convinced about Joshua. He challenges the tribes east of Jordan to cross over and fight with their fellow Israelites. And they answer, sure, we'll do it. We'll obey you just like we did Moses. But, they say, as long as the Lord was with you the way he was with Moses. You see, that's a condition. We'll obey you just like we obeyed Moses, only you better pass the Moses test, guy. 
only be sure the Lord is with you the way he was with Moses. And so that's why it's important to notice that God does give Joshua favor in the eyes of the people. As they cross the Jordan at its full flood stage, which is a huge and dangerous undertaking, the narrator tells us, the Lord said to Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. And so they complete the passage of the Jordan, and we're told on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel so that they revered him as they had revered Moses. And then after the victory at Jericho, we read the words we heard a few minutes ago, the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. But here's the key. You see, for Joshua, fame is not really the goal. Fame was just a means to a larger purpose. After they crossed the Jordan and, got, and Joshua was exalted before the people, Joshua reminds them that all that has happened, to use his words, is so that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of Yahweh, that it is mighty, and that you might fear the Lord your God forever. Later in the book, people will not talk about Joshua's fame, but the mighty deeds of Yahweh. So how does all this work out for Joshua? Well, run ahead five years. This man Joshua is standing on a hilltop. This time it's in the north of Canaan on the heights of Naphtali. And from these heights, he's about 2,500 feet or so above sea level. It's the smoky mountains of Israel. He can look down about 1,400 feet to the great citadel of Hatzor. This town is the crown jewel of Canaan. The Bible calls it the head of all those kingdoms. Hatzor's ruler alone among all the rulers of Canaan's towns could get away with calling himself in letters a king. The other guys had to settle for mayor. As Hatzor goes, so goes the entire northern half of the Holy Land. Joshua's led his people, all former slaves, in a series of battles against sort of the thug rulers of, and warlords of Canaan. And now they know they have one more task. Now, it says Joshua's fame was throughout the whole land, but remember, in a backwater like Canaan, that's a little bit like saying, yeah, this guy's really famous. He's known as far away as Nicholasville. <laughs> Here at the end, just as the beginning, Joshua's got to remember that the battle and the fame belong to the Lord. And he had waged a series of battles aimed at decapitating Ramses' administration of Canaan all the rulers of Jericho, Ai, Lachish, Ashkelon, Azekah, many others, 30 in all, had joined together to stop him, and they had failed. And now looking down on the giant, daunting city of Hatzor, Joshua tells his compatriots, this is the last one. When this city falls, the land will be able to breathe again. The blood of centuries of civil war and imperial oppression will wash from its soils. Fields trampled every year by thousands of horses, chariots, wagons, carts, the boots of thousands and thousands of soldiers. Those fields will blossom with crops and flowers. Roads once choked by military convoys will come alive with commerce. And indeed, between Joshua's day and the death of Solomon, only one Egyptian campaign came through Canaan. The Israelites also would get to do something that they've been fantasizing about for generations. Farm. To farm their own land. 
and, and to hand that farm to their children, secure in the knowledge that their great king Yahweh, unlike Ramses, happily gave them the land and would ensure that they could keep it. They would live kindly on the land, not stripping it, not wrenching from it every single morsel it could produce, leaving it tired and depleted. They would live kindly on this land, and the land would reward their kindness with bounty. The highland fields that only yielded crops to really discerning minds and sensitive hands who could be intimate with the land and match the cultivation technique to this little patch of soil. This land would support hundreds of small farming villages and towns that, as, as archaeologists see it, they, they just pop up like mushrooms after a spring rain. And these former slaves, these peasants born in the wilderness of Sinai, they would do something daring. They would plant vineyards. Vineyards need years to mature. They would plant olive trees. Olive trees can't yield for a full generation. Such plantings say these people began to imagine a future. A future without Ramses in it. And this Joshua, looking down at Hatzor, probably knew that the great powers of his age, the late Bronze Age, were doomed. He knew the restiveness of groups like the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites, the mice in a game of big cats, but mice growing claws and teeth. He knew also his God, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. And he knew the promise, the promise that gave Israel hope. And Yahweh's law had cast a vision for a completely new society, one in which kings were not tyrants, but guardians of the covenant, the treaty of Yahweh with his people. A society in which each person considered the other a brother or a sister, where each family would be a sacred enclosure, safe from predation and violation, where each person's land would be inviolate, where one day a week was devoted to rest and celebration, where life and truth and honor and marriage and family were the highest goods, where God alone was truly king, and the human king was just his glad and humble steward. This Joshua, really, he was a nobody. He came from nobody we know, and he left behind no descendants that we can identify. The text reports no marriage, no children. Though Jewish tradition, and I love this, has it that he married Rahab, the harlot. Hanker outside the camp, boys. Uh, we'll uh, have a conversation about that later. I hope that's true, but it's all just speculation. By every single measure of ancient Near Eastern culture, land, cities, ancestry, offspring, palatial residences, worldwide conquest, mind-numbing power, monumental inscriptions, Joshua, Joshua was definitely a loser. No kingdom, no glory, no wealth, no palaces, not even descendants. And then this Joshua did something Ramses would never have done, that no self-respecting world-class ruler would do. Joshua just vanished. He retired to his own patch of ground inherited by divine lot, just like everybody else. And he farmed. We don't know how long. All we know is that he emerges again 110 years old. to give a speech, and then to die. 
We can't even find his grave. How do you get to be famous when nobody can even find your grave? <laughs> Definitely not a Ramses II, is, is he? And yet, this old earth would circle the sun 3,200 more times. The name of Joshua would still be known. But really, other than historians, who really knows about Ramses II? He has become the cinematic cartoon character. Yule Brenner with too much eyeliner. Moaning, Moses, Moses, Moses. And who can tell me the name of the Hittite king who made his peace with Ramses? And what happened to that peace treaty anyway? In 1818, the British Museum announced that it would be receiving a seven and a quarter ton fragment, a chip really, of a massive statue of Ramses II. And it would be three more years before this treasure arrived, but the announcement and the fact that it had been hidden in desert sands for thousands of years inspired the poet Percy Shelley to pen one of his most famous poems using one of Ramses' throne names in an anglicized form, Ozymandias. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frowned and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Joshua, the nobody, is immortalized in Scripture. More importantly, when God decided to become an actual human being, to enter into this tired and dying world, to breathe new life into it, when God took on flesh to suffer and rise again for the redemption of creation, when He decided, like Joshua, to lead a host of captives into the promised land, to save His people from their sins and return again in glory to rule in a true peace forever, when God did that, He took a name. They shall call His name Jesus. In Hebrew, Joshua. And so I have a question for all of us today. Who are we trying to be? Ramses or Joshua? In whose eyes do we seek to be famous? In the eyes of the world and its thug princes and gangster princesses? Do we seek the fame of power and wealth and politics and big churches and giant budgets and sprawling campuses and awards and accolades and media attention and thousands of people hanging on our words? Do we imagine that a thousand years from now our legacy will live on if we just get a little more wealth, a little more power? Somewhere a breeze is already blowing. The sand is swirling, ready to bury our monuments. 
Joshua's fame was known throughout the land and for all eternity. Ramses is known to historians as the greatest of all the kings who had no clue how soon it would all be over. In whose eyes do we really seek fame? Which audience is the one for which we play? And when the sand starts to blow in and threatens to cover up everything that we have built, In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.